Uh, all right, Dan, I saw two things theatrically, and you saw two. Any chance that one of them is the same? Yeah, it's we both saw Clemency. Okay, we oh good. Okay, good. I, that's I would like your take on Clemency. So, should we start there? Sure. All right. Uh, who wants to give the? Uh, I mean, it's kind of. What's to say? <laughs> uh, who wants to? Do... Would the... you like me to do it? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Great. So Clemency. I'm interested to hear what a synopsis of this movie is. Sounds like like oh. it starts. Off I, I'm. I. I, mean, I feel like you're. You're. Um, showing us your cards a little bit. Yeah. Maybe. So Bernadine Williams, played by Alfre Woodard, is a death ward, uh, death row prison warden, whose job has taken a psychological toll on her, and she must confront her demons when she has to execute another inmate. That is That's, pretty good go. premise. Pretty good premise. Capsule. Yeah. Perfect. So I enjoyed this movie a lot. I think that without being preachy, it showed the human toll of uh, what what the death penalty brings about, not just on the recipient, but also on all the people who surround him, on the warden, on the deputy, on the chaplain, the lawyer, just everybody who surrounds this um, this case. And it seemed like the gentleman who was on death row, um, Anthony Woods, played by Aldous Hodge, was that there were certainly questions about his conviction or if he was misidentified, but that kind of wasn't the point. And I felt like in a very short amount of time, we got to know a lot of characters. It gave them something to do. I, I'm not sure what the message was in the end, if there was one to me, it was more uh, an experience that you have with these characters. Um, All the performances were really good. I was interested throughout I liked the relationship between Alfre Woodard and her husband, played by uh, Wendell Pierce. I like there was there was a certain humanity in how she had to shut down. That's kind of an ironic thing, but in becoming such a shell of a person, she kind of revealed her humanity because only a person who was human or had a heart. The only way you could approach what she was called upon to do was to shut yourself down. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what did, what was your, what are your thoughts? Well, going into the movie, uh, I, I had, a, I guess, misconstrued some comments by critics who were setting this against just mercy and saying, just mercy is kind of this by the numbers biopic, but clemency has, has artistry and it has, it's like, it's, it, it's uh, got something to say and it's a little more. So I was expecting, I don't know what I was expecting. I was expecting like a Tyler Perry movie. Oh, I, I agree with those reviews completely. Now I see it. Now those words make sense, but I misconstrued them. I, I, I agree as well, but I misinterpreted what that meant. I thought it was going to be a campy drama with the backdrop. I knew it was fictional, so I knew it wasn't going to mm-hmm. be like a preachy, you know, real life story, but it's way more, it's artistically, heavy and it's a very different film from just mercy with some similar similarities but not really like so i and i didn't tipping my hand it's not that i i didn't like it i liked it i i felt like i was aware that i was watching something very profound and very very well made and expressed and very you know personalized and uh but yeah i think you tipped it a little bit too and you said that you know you don't know what the message is it doesn't have a traditional arc 
No. She starts off, you can see the cracks showing. There's a horrific opening with a botched uh, execution. And then she just kind of spirals and her life just continues to crumble around her. And then, it, you know, and that's, it just takes her to a more intense place of where she was. And to me, my, my, the way I read the whole thing is that it's a portrayal of a system that has, you know, was necessarily designed without humanity and now is just crumbling apart because there's nothing warm or alive or good in it. And so she represents a, a, a normal person, not an evil person, but a person who, and also, like you say, the deputy and the guards and the, the, the chaplain, these people represent the human beings who shuffle around, you know, like, like uh, marionettes or something inside the system that should have been eradicated, should never have been, and should certainly now be eradicated, but it's just carrying out the motions of horror and, uh, how long can human beings go through those motions? You know, so I, I artistically, I get it. It's not that I don't get what's going on. It's just that as a movie experience, as a screenplay, it's very much just kind of like a, a tone exercise. Oh, yeah. Um, and the performance is great. And I love the stuff with the husband. It just wasn't what I was expecting. And so it left me very like not like it moved the way just mercy did. I cried at the end of just mercy. This left me just like still and um, almost like shivering. Yeah. I, it, it had a lot more questions than answers for sure. The way that she was dressed in all dark drab colors throughout. And then that moment where suddenly she is in all white, that's no accident. Like there, there's a change that's come over her. Um, how the, inmates are all dressed in that bright white as well that she's sort of uh i don't know if that was a moment of solidarity with them mm -hmm. um i was floored by how in a relatively short running time we got to know so many people and we could care about her marriage you know how cliche is that that somebody who's having a hard time at work their marriage is falling apart behind the scenes and we have some histrionics you know where there's a breakdown in communication or they get really upset with each other. But to me, it all flowed very naturally. I thought that their, their relationship rang really true. And I liked that window into her world. I liked the yeah. one scene that the mother of his child has, and we don't mm -hmm. get to meet her otherwise, but mm -hmm. she comes in and she hits that out of the park with what she's given to do. And it seemed like it belonged there and yet it didn't take up too much time. Um, I was sorry to see the turn that Mr. Belding's life took. Yes, yes, that as well. That was a piece yeah. of distracting casting for me, that and that's not strange, fair right? because he should, he should be able work, to be yeah. an actor, I guess. But, <laughs> yes, <right. laughs> but he, he's but just... that was an interesting. If you yeah, getting past the recognition, that was an interesting right. note as well. Yeah, having the uh, the cops' parents, uh, parents' family, sister. I couldn't quite track but the family of the right. slain officer right i was i was a little confused about that too i'll say this i know it's a movie can they ever turn on the light in the right. room where the family awaits an execution yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like right. there's no money for the electricity right. and they're sitting in this dark chamber yeah it did it did do some things like that very cinematically though how it like visually walked you through that horrific process mm -hmm. even before things went wrong in that opening just what a sad 
Like it's like everybody knows it's wrong and they just have to carry it out. It's so ridiculous. But then, then that that visual language comes back at the end, and you know, it it made it more impacting. Um, oh, I, what I wanted to say was like I like the nebulousness, and I liked it even before they dropped the hint that maybe um, Anthony was innocent, mm-hmm. because whereas. Just, uh, Just Mercy is a story that's trying to squeeze inspiration out of a horrific story, and it's trying to give you hope, and it's trying to say, you know, this, this is, uh, this is injustice. And I did appreciate the way that movie went even beyond the idea of arguing, of fighting for the wrongly accused, and and condemned capital punishment overall as an institution. Mm-hmm. This movie is not looking to give any hope. It is simple. It is, it is looking to really rub your nose in in this reality. And so I kind of appreciated the fact that we got to know him as a human being, whether or not he is guilty. To me, yeah. just thematically, that worked better. Yeah, I liked that you didn't really know. Yeah. And just everybody's coming apart. I appreciated the scene with the chaplain where he's retiring because this is too much. And they, without playing it up, she seems like she's an alcoholic on this other part of her life and drinking because she can't manage what her job has done to her and she can't manage what's happening in her relationship. And she's risking her, her job and her own safety and that of others where she's thinking about driving. Like I know it's movie drinking, but she had a lot. Um, And that isn't the main focus, but it's just a piece of what's happening to her as she's unraveling. Right. I don't know. I, I really I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, it's really good. You need to be um I think you need to be like braced for impact. It's um it's not easy, but I think it is something that's worth being confronted with. And strangely, it's it can be, you know, existentially depressing, but it's not as frustrating as right. just mercy because just mercy wants to be a feel good liberal movie where, you know, we got this and but it just it's such like a small little dent in the in the overall facade of this thing and this movie is just going right into the soul of it right into the darkness and spending a couple hours there yeah i was just gonna say that i mean not that exact thing but this doesn't have the frustration of just mercy while still playing out some of its themes and how can i say that clemency isn't about race because dynamics of race are everywhere, but it's not named by the characters. Because, you know, what does it mean for a black woman to have become a warden in our criminal justice system that so disproportionately um, imprisons black men? That that isn't a random choice uh, to cast a, a black woman. I I just thought it it was fascinating that they put it all out there and they didn't name it. You just watched it. Right. I noticed that as well. Yeah, that they it seemed like it was almost intentionally taking away an obvious race dynamic to really you know even though we all bring that with us and we understand right. it's there. It didn't wasn't exploiting it for for points or drama or whatever. It was. Yeah, I don't think um, I don't think a single racial or racist remark was made in the entire movie. 
Mm-hmm. Am I wrong about that? I don't think it was ever yeah, I think so. named. I don't think a character right. ever called someone a slur. I don't think anyone yeah. talked about the injustice of the system. The family that was there to see him uh, die was a mixed race family. Right. Um, all right. Well, that's the one that we both saw. I think that's a recommendation from both of us. Oh, yeah. Um, what did you, I think I know what you saw and I know what I, I definitely know what I saw. I, I mean, you should. Um, I'll talk about the turning. Yes. Okay. So this is a supernatural horror film, but it's based on uh, the ghost story, the uh, late 19th century ghost story, The Turn of the Screw. After watch, I'm not familiar with that. However, after watching it, I don't know what that title means. I don't know what today's title means. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's classic. Any haunting sort of movie that you've ever seen is based on this story an oft interpreted story right yeah. yes i mean the a, a woman shows up at this remote mansion there are children in her care strange happenings around the house a housekeeper who seems to know more than she's letting on and all sorts of terrifying visions await so here's something this was set in the 1990s and it's established in the opening moments where there is a news story about Kurt Cobain's death. So we know we're in the 90s. Yeah, I heard about that. What does this have to do with anything? There is no reason in the story that it needs to be set in the 90s. There is no, as far as I could tell, um, parallel to Kurt Cobain's own story that they're trying to mirror with the happenings. It was just kind of a random choice that we're in the 90s. And when she's talking to her friend on the phone, she's talking on like a humongous wireless phone. But there are no moments where having a cell phone would have changed things. I know that sometimes we set it out of, you know, cell phone land if that matters, but it wouldn't have mattered to the story. So I just thought that was a very almost distracting choice Yeah, to have it in the 90s for no reason. Um, Mackenzie Davis plays Kate the young woman who is a teacher in the city who decides to become the tutor of young Brooklyn Prince, who we remember from the Florida Project, um, the young precocious girl. And of course, Finn Wolfhard is her older brother. And boy, he's getting some traction. Yeah, And he comes back because he's been expelled from boarding school. She meets him in a creepy way in the middle of the night. And... In one sense, it seems like the movie is holding its mysteries close, but I think it might just have been a bad screenplay because we're not totally sure if the spirit of the former riding instructor who has now died is inhabiting this boy, and that's why he is treating Kate inappropriately. Um, The kids seem to understand that there are ghosts that are around this house. They don't seem to be concerned about them. Their parents died in in an unnamed accident or incident, um, but those ghosts don't seem to play into it. The ghosts that are there are the ghosts of the former governess and of this riding instructor who are both now dead. And there is a housekeeper who's been with the family forever, and she won't say what she knows. And I will say it became kind of tiresome just to watch Kate walk through this house 
and have very usual jump scare ordeals with the ghosts whose presence there doesn't have any content. It's not like they're trying to work out something so that they can move on. And sometimes they can affect the living and harm them. And sometimes they can't. There aren't clear rules. The strangest thing about the movie, and I'm not sure if this was good or not, was that you get to the ending where, and I mean, I guess this is a spoiler, but I don't think so because it was so mishandled. She escapes the ghosts. She escapes the house and the grounds with the children. And then all of a sudden we're transported back to an earlier scene. And from there, an entirely different trajectory of events flows forth and does not come to a conclusion. The final moment is Kate looks into some sort of mirror, sees something terrifying, but we don't know what it is. And then we're finished. What did she see? What could it mean? Was the first ending a dream? Was the second ending a dream? It just kind of left me bewildered. And I stayed through the whole credits because in the credits, things are going on in the background like there's some there's a hand like following a pattern on wallpaper and then a character comes into frame and I'm thinking will something be explained if I just hang out nope and I was not the only one nobody left the theater we weren't meant there weren't many of us but everybody was staying and we were all bewildered about what mm-hmm. we just watched because it didn't I I'm fine with the movie not really coming to a conclusion but after having that misdirect and that double back you think you must have done that for some reason, that there's some revelation some that, that she had been dreaming or something. But you know when there's a premonition in a horror movie, usually there's that obvious moment of the character's recognition where they wake up or they're startled out of their trance and you realize that it was a dream? This doesn't happen. It's just kind of like a postmodern finish. Yeah, That we had one story ending and now we're back to where we knew before but different things transpire and then we end up nowhere. I was intrigued by this movie because it looked like it had had some artistry or even some philosophy or ideas to it. It did. Um, but then I saw PG-13 and January. Yeah. And I was like, oh, are they dumping another half-baked horror movie into the beginning of the year? And what's a shame was as I was watching, I w- besides being a little bit weary of just wandering the halls and the basements for no reason to get scared or really having no urgency and you're not being threatened. I was kind of enjoying it because I liked the look of it. It seemed like the director was making some very intentional visual choices. Performances are good. The characters are likable. There was just enough intrigue to keep you going, but it just, it fell apart at the end to say it didn't stick the landing it it broke its ankle too. Like it was, mm. it, it was like a rough rough ending. But to me, worth worth a worth a stream to just to see yeah. what you think of it. Uh, yeah, that is a shame because uh, uh, Mackenzie Davis is also um, usually the best part of things that she's involved in. Worth pointing out, Dan. I'm about to. If you're finished with that one, if that's yes. that to bed. Uh, as I launch into my other theatrical title, I'll mention that. All three of the new films we saw this week were directed by women mm-hmm. and star women who uh, I would be happy to see, you know, get starring turns 
uh, again and again. That's just an interesting and and rare thing, I guess. Well, not on not on this podcast because yeah. <laughs> we're ahead of the pack. Of course, no. I, no, I, I did not. I actually did not realize that until I was just clicking through, back and forth through IMDb, and I was like, "Wait, mm-hmm. uh, three women directors. That's great." So the movie I saw was the rhythm section, and oh boy, uh, this movie. I can't say that it it looked intriguing, I suppose. It was one of those trailers that I saw too many times and I started to resent it and time my last minute bathroom trips, you know, during it. Um and uh basically it's it's directed by uh Reed Morano. It's written by Mark Burnell and based on his novel. So it's a novelist adapting his own work, and I don't know if that's the problem right there. I don't I honestly do not know. But this movie is a complete misfire. Uh, it is, here's what on paper, it should be great. It is a vehicle for Blake Lively to play a, um, a woman whose family is killed in a tragic accident. She finds out that it may not have been an accident. And then she decides to train to become a killer and get revenge on uh, those responsible. But it has a very serious and somber and realistic tone. It's not atomic blonde. It's not red sparrow. It's, it really tries hard to be like, what would it feel like and look like if you tried to go and be an assassin? She's not amazing at it. It's not slick. It's ugly and it's awkward. Um, it should, so that's an interesting take. Unfortunately, the movie is boring and absurd and weird and uh, trudge. Uh, it starts out, uh, Blake Lively is, you know, you get some, a few home movies showing her happy family in England and then fast forward. And she is, uh, of course, the only thing that, you know, grief, uh, allows a woman to be is a heroin addicted prostitute. (laughs) And then a, a reporter seeks her out, um, for no, we never really find out why, but this uh, this gentleman named uh, Proctor, played by Raza Jaffrey, he is a reporter who's been piecing together. He's got the the stereotypical uh, apartment wall with all the pictures and news clippings and the pieces of yarn connecting everything, and he figured out that this plane crash was that killed her family that she was supposed to be on, but she skipped the flight because she was undependable. And now she blames herself that this was a terrorist act. And then he points her in the direction of, of, uh, you know, pulling on the threads and all that. And then she finds her way to Jude Law, who is this ex MI6 guy who lives in the mountains of Scotland. And he reluctantly trains her in way too little time to become a killer. And then she uh, starts taking contracts to kill other people to kind of practice her way up to, getting the terrorists and it's every decision artistically and and dramatically is so baffling and and strange she'll learn the movie will take its time for her to learn a lesson for in in her training for him to say something to her over and over again for her to remember to do this thing and then when it gets to a moment later where she's assassinating she will not do it it either won't come up or she'll do the opposite and it's like the movie does not I like that it's trying to be a little bit fractured and, and realistic and not slick, but it's like it forgets to have any kind of trajectory. And then by the end, 
you're just like it, it clearly wants to set up a, a a Jason Bourne kind of franchise, and it's uh, it's a big no thank you by, by by the end from the audience. Why is it called that? The rhythm section, mm-hmm. because of a convoluted thing that her. It seemed like her mother used to say to her, but then Jude Law, independently of her mother, says the same thing to her. And that is that your breathing is, is, or it's about dealing with anxiety and fear that your heartbeat is the drum and your breathing is the bass. It's the rhythm section. Mm, I see. Yeah. Sterling K. Brown is in there also as, um, another uh, an information broker he used to be cia where jude law used to be mi6 and so now he can give her the information but then there's all kinds of intrigue about him and who he really is and what's going on and um the other strange aspect is that she assumes the specific identity of an assassin who was killed so she starts to become petra she becomes this girl and she starts showing up amongst people who are like hey you're not petra anyway and like they they go along with it it's very it's a very very strange movie she's seeking to be an imposter yeah and so and the whole idea is supposed to be that she wants revenge she's just an innocent person whose family was taken from her she feels guilty and she wants to wipe out the very bad people who are terrorists who are responsible um also they are middle eastern and but the collateral damage that this woman causes, the innocent people that die because of her mistakes or because of her taking these other jobs to 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 kill people who are tangentially or not even related to it's very bizarre that the and convoluted with the posing as this other assassin, with taking the other jobs. Um it, it she never turns into like a fully uh realized assassin but then there's a little cute tag at the end of the movie that treats her as such it's very very strange and i i see why it was dumped here it's a shame because as i say on paper this could have been something very interesting yeah i may end up catching it depending on how long it stays in the theater i don't think i'll make it this Mm -hmm. week but we shall see yeah all right well that's our new movies why don't we take a quick break and then we're going to actually read resume the uh, premise of the podcast for for a little bit we're going to talk about Steven Spielberg's uh, Catch Me If You Can in just a couple seconds we'll see you in a bit bye Welcome back, Dan and Josh. Uh, we're going to have a holds up convo. Uh, although for you, I believe this was your first experience with this film. Sure was. So I don't know even why this came up. Somebody mentioned it on Twitter or something. Uh, Steven Spielberg's 2002 uh, biopic of con man Frank Abagnale Jr. called Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. And I just thought it's been... I think it's been since 2002 since I saw this movie. I remember thinking that it was weird and I wanted to see what, uh, if it holds up or not. Uh, so I watched it and I, and I invited you to do the same. 
So uh, I will very, very quickly give the rundown of what this movie is. I think most people are familiar with it. It's by the most famous director of all time and stars two of the biggest movie stars of all time. DiCaprio does play Abagnale Jr., uh, Frank Abagnale, who is a young man who uh, really, really, really likes his dad, who's played by Christopher Walken. And he wants to be like his dad. And his dad's a little bit of a... um, a braggart and a little bit of a con man and he teaches his son frank jr how to uh make the most out of business situations and uh frank abagnale becomes one of the uh biggest uh and most successful con men before he even reaches the age of 18 he's posing as a pan am pilot he is uh faking checks he pretends to be a doctor he pretends to be a lawyer he uh, steals over $1.4 million, I think they say, in in, in fake checks. And uh, Tom, meanwhile, Tom Hanks is uh, Carl Hanratty, the FBI agent who is pursuing him. And uh, they play a bit of cat and mouse, and it ends up being international until they have a confrontation in France. And Frank is imprisoned. And then essentially... Frank ends up working for the FBI in their uh, check fraud task force, helping them using his expertise for good, somewhat reluctantly at first, according to the movie. So uh, this is Spielberg at the height of his powers in his DreamWorks era, where he's working with people like Leo and Tom Hanks and making uh, quirky movies that he wants to make. And this is sure one of them. Uh it's a well-made movie that I find to be so quirky and strange. I have some things to say about it thematically and uh, the way that it chooses to portray its character and, and, the, and the themes. But first, I would like to know, Dan, what was your experience uh, watching this for the first time? Well, I had a cultural awareness of this movie and I figured I knew what it was about. And it turns out I did. I didn't. It wasn't very surprising. To me, it felt very 90s, and I know it was early 2000s, so a lot of that style is the same. Um, But I kind of miss movies like that, that are kind of, it's not an epic, but it feels epic. It feels longer than it needs to be. Um, I enjoyed watching the actors, and they've gone on to be, you know, even way more famous than they were then, and they were pretty famous then. Hmm. Um, I like to see Amy Adams. I wasn't aware of her in Hmm. 2002. I I remember she uh, did a guest spot, I mean, not a guest spot, but a, a bit part on The Office, uh, American Office, the first season. And that was the first time I knew who she was. And I kind of noticed her film roles after that. But that would have been, I don't know, when did that premiere? Probably 2003 or four. So yeah, that she had a pretty significant part in in this film. I mean, thank God this was a true story because so unbelievable otherwise everything that he's able to um figure out and accomplish even escaping out of that plane you know (laughs) through the toilet and out through the tire you should have been crushed or killed um it, it was pretty amazing to think that someone actually did that to me that was more intriguing than watching the events of the film play out everyone just seemed like a a mindless mark um, I know that they had the thing about how they were friends and he's the only person he can call because he has no, you know, relationships, nobody to reach out to. 
uh, I wasn't particularly endeared to that. I thought that was kind of weird and uh, boundaryless. I'm interested to hear why you think it's quirky. Uh, quirky is a dumb word. I don't think it's quirky. I think it's weird. <laughs> I think it's creepy almost. Okay. I, uh, all right. So I'm, remind, I'm remembering back to when I first saw it. And this is so, this is at a point in the Leo, the Leo career. Uh, and this is not color my experience watching it now. But I'm remembering that when I first saw it, I still thought Leo was undeserving of his success and just a kid. And I, I don't sure. know, for some reason, I had a snobbish attitude about him. I've certainly come around. He is a, one of the greatest actors we have. Right. He's proved it with time. And 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 looking back at this, his performance is is excellent. And I, every, everybody's like doing top notch work here. I guess my my weirdness comes from the 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 cutesy Spielberg's cutesy portrayal of this kind of criminality and how it's just kind of like, what are you going to do? This is this guy. It's, it's wacky. And I, I don't know if it's the times where I feel like, um, grifting and, 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 and con men are kind of like running the country right now. People who just kind of, uh, brute force or, you know, uh, will their way into wealth and, and influence. Uh, it's not something that I find cute, something that kind of, right. Sure. drives me crazy and this movie wants to kind of just we be winky winky and and also just some other weird decisions in the in the performance and the way that it's written his relationship with his parents is very strange to me even though it's so well directed i mean it's so exciting it's got a great pace it's so clever and inventive like everything spielberg does um it it elevates i guess for me material that i'm just not into so I almost have to begrudgingly admit that this is a good movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is good. To me, it just was like I had a, a a vision of what it would be, and then that is pretty close to the to what played out. I, I wasn't uh, taken or not taken with it. I found myself in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess it holds up because it was an interesting totally. watch. Yeah, yeah. It's it it it's certainly interesting to see these actors and other actors who show up in there. Uh, Jennifer Garner. Um, yeah, that was, you're right. Yeah, that's right. I liked her scene. And to me, this movie could have been made today without yeah. many changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just would have, you know, Chalamet play the DiCaprio role right. and DiCaprio yeah. play the Hanks role. Right. That's yeah. Hey, maybe that's be kind of a honey too. boy. Right. Yeah, it's definitely worth it for Ellen Pompeo is in there, James Brolin. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fascinating cast. It's it's Janusz Kaminski cinematography, Michael Kahn editing. It is again John Williams. It's all these these artists, at, you know, doing what they do. I guess for me, it's just thematic hangups about not thinking this guy is very cool. And oh worth, no, I certainly didn't worshiping think he was in a cool. movie. No. Did you feel the movie was doing that? Like saying, wow, uh, I felt what like he was he able was, to do. Uh, yeah, I felt it was on his side for most of the kind movie. Kind of anti-hero, like you're rooting for him? Yeah. Like, supposed to? And in, in the movie watching experience, I was rooting for him. Because um, you kind of want somebody, you want the little guy to get away with it. But at the same time, I'm thinking, but this guy, I mean, he's got serious problems. Uh, no, I wasn't, know, it, I wasn't rooting for him. I felt sorry for the people that he was mm -hmm. deceiving. Yeah. For sure. I guess it's just in the in the cat and mouse with sure. Tom Hanks. I feel like the perspective of the scenes is how is he going to get out of this one? And then well, it's supposed to be satisfying when he does. 
I thought Tom Hanks's character was pretty unimpressive. The yeah. not very good detective work and incredibly right. gullible. Yeah. You'd be taken yeah, off that, this case. Yeah. You're you're cavorting around the world and you miss him every time, even when he comes face to face with you and you don't even realize it. Yeah. You're a fool. I would be surprised if 25% of the actual events of this movie really happened. Oh, sure. I feel like I feel like this is a major inspired by I don't think the plane thing really happened. Um, I searched for it and all I got was people wondering if it really happened. Oh, no confirmation oh. that it did. Um, but you, you got it. You know, he really did pose as a pilot successfully. He really did forge all those checks. Um, all that stuff is true. I just think that in real life, anybody who would do those things is a real shit stain. Right. I agree. The kind of person who could now just go to Mar-a-Lago and, and compliment <laughs> the right people and find himself in an ambassadorship. Yeah. I don't know if I, if I went there in my mind, I don't feel like he's that kind of grifter. Oh, okay. He's far too competent. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Christopher Walken, I, you know, what are you going to say? He's, yeah, uh, I guess we didn't Walken. mention him. Yeah, he is being himself in the way that you know he was Oscar nominated for this. Yeah. Wow. Did he? Did he win the SAG? What did he win the SAG for? He won the SAG one of those years over. I want to say Chris Cooper. And then Chris Cooper went on to win the Oscar for adaptation. I think it might have been that year. Uh, he won for this. Hmm. He was nominated for Hairspray. He won for Catch Me If You Can. Nice. Good call right. me. I know we're already over time here. Yeah, um, we are. The, <clears throat> the Oscars are on Sunday. I just think we should mention Yes. Oh, that's right. I got to figure out how I'm going to actually watch them. Yeah, I think that uh, it's... 1917 Parasite Jojo has surpassed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in my estimation. Wow. I think those are the uh, director and two screenplay awards, respectively. All I think right. it's uh, beaten Little Women. Wow. Well, as we've said before, it's such a, um embarrassment of riches this year. Know, it's just going to be which, which movie I loved is going to get uh, right. honored. Cool, cool. All right. Um, well, Dan, uh, are you glad that you watched catch me if you can you know i'm your, so glad is your life any better or worse i mean it's something that's uh kept me up a little bit the last two decades mm. well, i never, I never caught that, it uh, and, and now i right. have <laughs> the other movie from that era that i think of and it, it kind of as a companion to catch me if you can is the terminal which oh. is really hard to find people love this movie and remember this one but uh, there's no disc that you can buy of uh, the terminal, and it's not on. You can rent it in a couple places, but it's been really kind of left in the on the wayside. Can probably buy a bootleg copy of it in a terminal, perhaps. Well, it's fun talking about an older movie. Maybe we should do it again if you want to think. You know, uh, yeah. Let me let me think of one. Uh, until then, I believe this has been our podcast, and I believe we've been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. Our theme music is by Jonah Rapino, and uh, thanks for listening, guys. We and gals and people and pets. We'll check you out next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. I feel like you sit there with bated breath, just waiting for my health checks to pass, and it's like, boom. I do. Record. It's a real moment of excitement and tension every week. Yeah.
I've usually been sitting here for about three and a half hours. <laughs> it really pays off when you show up. <laughs>